Hello, and welcome back for an episode of Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Today, we'll cover the earliest forms of football and games like it. I'm happy to be here, and of course, very happy to have you here as well. If you think about it, the basics of football aren't that complex. You have two teams of players arranged opposite each other with one ball between them. Each has the goal of advancing that ball to a protected space behind the opposing team. After a specific amount of time, the team who did that successfully the most wins. And in fact, it appears variations on that basic formula came and went dozens if not hundreds of times all across the globe and throughout history. The earliest known football-ish game was recorded in China. I say game in the singular for the sake of brevity, but in all honesty, like football, it was a family of related games called Kuju. Kuju means kickball, and there seems to have been a huge number of variations of Kuju in play as far back as the Zhao Dynasty in the early Iron Age, but definitely by the Han Dynasty in the late Iron Age. The one most similar to modern football codes appears to have been Bai Da. This kicking game was played between organized teams of six on a field broken into six or twelve equal rectangles, with a net stretched across the middle dividing the field. To us, it would probably look more like volleyball, and while the rules of the game are a bit hazy today, it did have a full contact phase. On the other side of the world, the ancient Greek game Episkaros was a full contact game and the ball was advanced at least in part by carrying it. It existed as both unorganized mob games and in organized team forms and seems to have varied quite a bit, as with all things in ancient Greece, depending on which city-state you lived in. It's often thought of as being similar to rugby, but it also had a feature that distinguished early forms of the American game from early forms of rugby, a somewhat deeper concern with territory. I'll cover these distinctions in depth in a future episode, but for now, suffice it to say that in addition to the two goal lines that would be familiar to any fans of any modern football code, Episcaros also had a center line, kind of like soccer, that demarcated sides of the field. And in some versions of the game at least, it forced a change of possession with the ball when that line was successfully crossed or defended. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of antecedents to modern football games from all across the world, more than I could even vaguely cover here. But the most likely candidates for the direct antecedents of the major codes of modern football, which are for my purposes soccer, football, rugby, and Australian rules, are the wide variety of games that today we remember as mob football. Mob football games weren't organized by any modern standard. They were usually played annually, or maybe semi-annually, coinciding with religious holidays like the modern Florentine holdout Calcio Fiorentino. The rules were usually mutually agreed upon beforehand and only loosely enforced, and these kinds of games were subject to all sorts of legislative anxiety in the late medieval and early modern period, especially in England, which was home to innumerable informal games, some of which survive to this day. In the town of Ashbourne, in Derbyshire, you'll find one such game. Lo the locals will proudly tell you it is the origin of football, all of football. I'll take it far enough to agree that it's certainly ancient, going back to at least the medieval period when possibly with roots running this way and that throughout history, far enough back to mingle with games played during the Roman occupation of Britain. Two teams separated by the River Henmore. Those born on the north side of the river are called the Uppards, those below the Downards. Every Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday, these two massive sides come together, setting aside all other relationships with each other, to push a ball through a riot. The goals are on either side of town, old millstones upon which the scoring player must strike the once handsomely painted ball three times. The player who scores gets to keep the ball, an honor that for Ashburnians is akin to a Ballon d'Or or a Heisman Trophy. The goals are separated by the town because the field of play is the town. 
the whole thing. Thousands of players engage in a no-holds-barred battle down the otherwise quiet streets, desperately seeking to push the ball by means fair or foul to more open fields where creativity, tactics, and skill can count for more than luck and raw strength. It's not unusual and, and might in fact be preferable, given the amount of space taken up by spectators, for the ball to wind up in muddy canals or the local fish pond. There aren't a lot of rules. No murder, of course. Try to respect private property. Definitely do not carry the ball in a car. But most of the rest of it is worked out between the players, none of whom are paid, and all of whom wouldn't care to be anywhere else. So it's not hard to imagine how games like these could find themselves at various times on the wrong side of the laws and norms of the country and civil society. But at some point, these mob games found their way into early English schools. Unlike the farmers and tradesmen of the mob games, the students at these early institutions were overwhelmingly drawn from wealthier classes. They would go on to careers in politics, law, medicine, and business, and crucially, they were highly literate in an age where reading was common but writing far less so. So naturally, being future lawyers, politicians, and bankers, they had to make up rules for everybody else. And naturally, they called these rules laws. One of the oldest sets of laws we have are those from Cambridge. Ball games at Cambridge have an exceedingly long history, being first documented in the late 16th century as part of the official report of a brawl that one such game provoked. But what are today remembered as the Cambridge rules grew out of a much later necessity. By the middle of the 19th century, different forms of early football were well established at a number of English boarding schools which fed into the University at Cambridge. The problem was when the, these boys arrived in Cambridge so eager to play football, they found themselves surrounded by other potential players, all of whom had grown up with an entirely different set of rules. Several early attempts were made to formalize a new game to the satisfaction of everyone, but they continually broke down over the question of how the ball should be advanced, by kicking or by carrying. The most prominent advocates of a carrying code were the alumni of the rugby school, which, while not the most prominent of the English boarding schools at any time, is best remembered in relation to the history of football, since it lent its name to two modern codes, Rugby Union and Rugby League. But it seems not many others agreed with the rugby boys. Alumni of the other schools often found themselves frustrated with the rugby rules, and more than one attempt to synthesize a common set of rules proved inadequate and short-lived. So in 1848, an auspicious year for radical change in Europe, they decided to get organized. They elected representatives from each of the relevant codes along with two students who hadn't attended one of the boarding schools to serve as neutral parties. With this body, they hammered out a compromise, the Cambridge Rules. Henry Charles Malden, one of the unaffiliated neutral students, later wrote a letter to the Football Association in which he described the formation of the Cambridge Rules and claimed the rules later adopted by the Football Association were more or less identical. That claim is disputed. Little of that game survives outside of his letter, and several more such committees were held in the years after 1848, so the claim doesn't seem sturdy on its face. But to give it its due, it's the earliest known attempt to create something like a formalized game for a larger pool of athletes. So the idea was coming together at Cambridge, common rules for a common game. But it wasn't quite there yet. The Cambridge rules were still too unorganized and obviously only intended for students. Different codes of football were beginning to spread far beyond the campuses of any school, chiefly among adult athletic clubs. 
and the same problems plagued those clubs. So in 1863, a group of 11 of those clubs got together to hash out a new set of rules. They would call themselves the Football Association, and Association Football was born. Called soccer in the U.S. and Canada, from a shortening of association, the first laws of the game were established in 1863. The motivations for the formation of the FA and the codification of a set of standard rules of play were more or less the same as they had been among those students at Cambridge, only now the game wasn't just for students. But once again, the problem of carrying or kicking reared its head. The football association and the adherents of the rugby-style games would soon go their separate ways, changing the face of the sport forever. But some of those early rugby-style carrying games had already broken containment. They found a new home in the New World, among the universities of the United States and Canada. By the 19th century, American academic life had already coalesced around the cluster of prestigious universities that still hold the lion's share of the prestige. And at that time, those universities, today largely referred to in all contexts as the Ivy League for the name of their athletics association, looked to Oxford, Cambridge, and English universities in general. By the time of the Football Association, several football-ish games had already spread throughout the northeastern United States, in particular among these universities. And in fact, by the time of the schism between association football and rugby, the quote, first college football game had already taken place in 1869. Though that distinction is a bit arbitrary, and there are records of football games as far back as the 1820s. But as the English were breaking their sport in half over how the ball should be advanced and how to enforce offsides rules, the American universities already had their answer to the former. A football was meant to be carried. The official, quote, first football game was a kicking game with rules based on those of the football association played between Princeton Universities and Rutgers. But shortly thereafter, the Harvard team learned a version of rugby from McGill University and kicking games wouldn't last much longer. Kicking, as they understood it at the time, was an individual skill, and these adherents to the emerging doctrine of muscular Christianity wanted a true team sport to instill discipline, toughness, and teamwork to future generations of American men. More on muscular Christianity and its impact on the development of football to come. But to deal with the offsides question, the emerging American game needed some help. Enter Walter Camp, the father of American football. Now, Walter Camp is an important guy for football. He'll probably get his own supplementary episode at some point soon, but for now, he's one of the primary parties responsible for football being so different from its relatives, soccer and rugby. Until his innovations, each time the ball was put in play, possession had to be decided by a contested scrimmage. This is one of early football's holdovers from early rugby and can still be seen in modern rugby scrum. But the contested scrimmage soon fell out of favor. From the perspective of Walter Camp and those like him, the contested scrimmage introduced a greater element of chance to the sport, which in the thinking of the time was unsportsmanlike. So in place of the contested scrimmage, Camp introduced the line of scrimmage. The line of scrimmage is an imaginary line that splits the field horizontally, extending from sideline to sideline across the nose of the football on the ground. The area along that line is called the neutral zone and can't be crossed by either team until the ball is put in play which is done by a player called a center, usually by passing the ball between his legs to the quarterback behind him. This is called the snap. This contrasts with rugby, where a scrum is formed with the opposing teams interlocking at the heads and shoulders, after which the ball is put in play from the side. 
If the defense violates the neutral zone before the ball is snapped, that's offsides. If the offense makes any illegal motion before the ball is snapped, you could have one of several penalties, all of which preempt any concerns with an offsides infraction. The effect is that movement before the snap is much more restricted for the offense, and offsides is only functionally a concern for the defense. Some of this took years to work out. In the earliest days after Walter Camp's reforms, what we now call the snap was achieved by kicking the ball backwards so it rolled along the ground, another adaptation from early rugby. It took even longer to work out exactly who the person taking the snap would be and what the rules would be for him. This is football before the forward pass, which is arguably its defining aesthetic feature anywhere, and certainly outside the US and Canada, so modern quarterbacks didn't properly exist yet. The shape of football to come was crystallizing, though. The change to an uncontested scrimmage proved to be a branching event in the evolution of a brand new sport, one which would spawn a host of different questions and problems, answers and solutions, and before long, give us something like the sport we know and love today. On the next episode, we'll talk about the spread of early football across the map. We'll start in the northeastern United States and the adjacent parts of Canada, and from there move down the Appalachian Mountains to the American South, then Texas and all points west. The names of some of the early titans of the sport will be familiar to fans of the college game, Michigan, the Ivy League schools, and so on. But other early powers may surprise you. Some have even disappeared from the face of the sport entirely. Thanks for listening. I'll see you when I see you.